in a way it's all it's all about memory I've got loads of childhood memories but none of them are really good being in the house mum out in the pub uh, mum comatose in bed and setting fire to the bedroom to keep my brother and sister warm because it was cold I can remember Lorraine setting the bedroom on fire uh, and I were only young then, I was probably only about five. But t still to this day, if you talk about it to me, aunties and stuff, and they all say, we don't know which one of yous it was. And I'm like, it won't be because I can actually remember it. Great is this force of memory. Excessive great. Oh my God. A large and boundless chamber. Whoever sounded the bottom thereof. Yet is this a power of mine, and belongs unto my nature. Nor do I myself comprehend all that I am. Therefore is the mind too straight to contain itself. The handle fell off the door on the inside, so I couldn't get back out. There were only handle on outside. Is it without it, and not within? Started unscrewing it with a knife or something. <laughs> How then doth it not comprehend itself? I just remember banging and banging and banging on the window, trying to get out. The facts in some ways are quite unstable. Our memory plays tricks on us and confuses us. Great is this force of memory. My first memory is of seeing my father down on his knees in our attic. My first memory was in Bristol, when I think I was probably about that. Well, one of my first memories, it'd been at home. One of the earliest memories I have is almost being blown away by a tornado. shoulder, um, as I now know, being taken out to an air raid shelter. Floor tiles and, th and throwing something. I think that's probably my first memory. <laughs> God, it's funny being this side of the mic because I asked um, Lisa and Lorraine that when I was making the harbour, but I've never been asked it myself. <laughs> being in the house, mum out in the pub. Uh, Mum in bed. In a way, it's all, it's all about memory because if you interview somebody in the present about something that happened in the past, it's always about recall. My mum used to take the door handles off and she used to come in the bedroom and check. My name's Clio Barnard and I'm a filmmaker. Sometimes I call myself an artist filmmaker. And The Arbour is a film about Andrea Dunbar who's a playwright who uh, is from Bradford. And The Arbour was the name of her first play, which she wrote when she was 15 years old, and also is the name of the place where she grew up, um, a place called Brafton Arbour, which is on the Buttershore Estate in Bradford. The Arbour, Act One, Scene Six. Hey, you the police. The film's really made up of three elements. So there's archive footage of Andrew Dunbar and her family. There's a performance of her play, The Arbour, on Brafton Arbour. 
and there are interviews with her family and actors are lip-syncing to the voices of the interviewees. I've got loads, I've got loads of childhood memories, but none of them are really good. Um, I don't think you remember the good stuff. One of the first scenes in the film is actually the, the response from Andrew Dunbar's daughters, Lisa and Lorraine, their response to my question, what's your earliest memory? Being in the house, mum out in the pub, uh, mum comatosed in bed and setting fire to the bedroom to keep my brother and sister warm because it was cold. And both of them remembered a fire that happened in their bedroom when they were very small. But they both remembered that event completely differently. Standing at the window, I can remember Lorraine setting the bedroom yeah, on fire. fire got out of control. I were only young then. I, I think it were actually me. And I suppose the reason that scene is so crucial, and those two memories, I mean, being side by side, it makes you aware, really, of that fact that anything told in the present, where you're talking about the past, you're always on slightly unstable ground, I suppose. And I like it won't be because I can actually remember it to this day. In many ways, we define ourselves by our memories. We, we are constructing our identity as we live through our lives. That's what, that's what living is. It's, it's, it's making a narrative out of the things that happen to us. I can actually remember my mum when we lived at Edgen Gardens. I can always remember her staying up late writing. Well, now I know what it was, do you know what I mean? But when we're At the biological level, the working assumption is that memories are encoded in the brain in terms of changes in the patterns of connections between individual nerve cells, primarily in the brain cortex. That's the great skin of um, nerve cells which wraps over the whole of the surface of the brain, so-called grey matter. Now, there are 100 billion such nerve cells and 100 trillion connections between them, so it's quite easy to imagine that you could code for almost any sort of experience in changes in the patterns of these cells. The trouble, however, is that we don't quite know what we mean by a memory. If I'm asked to remember my fourth birthday party, a person's name, how many, if you like, bits of information do need to be encoded in my brain in order to actually enable me to recall that? We risk um, drowning in a kind of surfeit of, of memory. There's a sense in which, uh, and many artistic projects, I think, play with this idea that we could basically, from, from birth to death, every instant of our uh, life could be recorded. Nothing need be lost. Andrea Dunbar is 18 years old. When she was 15, she wrote a play set in Bradford, where she was brought up. Through friends... Play was sent to the Royal Court Theatre in London. I mean, the very sense of the words in which we use to describe memory these days, which are derived from, if you like, both literary and technological metaphors. You talk about stores of memory, as if memory is stored like a computer store. You just talk about archiving as if, in fact, there were piles of disks. And yet, we are constantly having to accommodate our memories to the ways in which we get new cues that come out of the new media. And that is changing the way that we think and understand ourselves and the world. Throwing stuff away is, is, is very therapeutic. We may be denied the, the pleasures of actual liquidation, of, of, of breaking off with the past. The, the problem about the archive is its profusion. 
the multiplicity, that it's the non-selectivity. There's a kind of the, the, the too much of the archive. But still to this day, if you talk about it to me, aunties and stuff, and they all say, we don't know which one of you it was. And I like it won't be, because I can actually remember it. It's incredibly important to record people's stories. I'm Lavinia Greenlaw, and the earliest memory I have is of a bad accident I had. I was sleeping in a top bunk, and I had a slide at the end of the bunk, and I, I was about three, and I was playing with a bamboo garden cane, and I put it in my mouth, and I went down the slide, and the cane went up through the roof of my mouth. And it took me years to understand that I'd almost died and to understand why I'd almost died. But what I remember is the stopping of the world, that I suddenly couldn't move through it, that the world had thrown me back. My, my first memory my first musical memory, which is my first memory of any value, was uh, sitting I in short trousers at the age of about five. Is my father singing? The very first song that I can remember hearing sung. When we were in a very small caravan. Music's powerful because it isn't a memory. It's it's a way into a memory, and because it addresses us in such a visceral way, it transports us immediately to the moment when that memory was formed. So you're not telling yourself a story or being reminded of a story, in which case you can take little steps into the past. And as you hear that music, you experience the thing you're remembering. So it's much more powerful. I'm Paul Robertson and I've spent my life as a musician. For most of my career I led the Medici String Quartet as a violinist, although over the last 10 or so years I've been teaching medical humanities at a medical school. The first information in tends to be the last that leaves. We know from a whole mass of research and observation that even unborn the unborn child is, is responding very specifically to sound from 16 weeks in, the, in, in utero. And by 26 weeks, still unborn, can both hear, uh, recognize, and increasingly clearly uh, respond to and remember musical impulses that it hears. we go to the other end of life and we begin to lose memory in, say, a dementia, sure enough, it's musical memory that stays most intact. Nothing else would matter in the world today. We would go on loving in the same old way.
for, for quite a long period, I worked with a colleague, uh, Dr. John Zeisel, who, who uh, supports people going into and indeed in advanced dementias. Unlike most people's perception of it, it appears it's not that we lose our memory. What we tend to lose actually is access to our memory. And of course, the access which culturally we mostly use is language. Asking, or even worse, demanding of someone in a dementia, do you remember me, do you know who I am, is almost bound to frighten, startle and make them anxious. And sure enough, like, like a child, when you demand an answer to a specific question, they panic. And in fact, there are lots of circumstances where if you sing a song, particularly a song that they heard in their early childhood, the complete person is immediately present. The only boy. That, 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 that is uh, what I generally sing. <laughs> I mean, I suppose my memory of my mum, my mother, you know, singing to me. She used to sing to me and um, her voice. As we, as we wander around uh, the city of London at the weekends, we encounter Susan Phillips's voice resonating through a number of different locations in the city. It's a project called Surround Me, which uh, signifies the way that she's interested in creating kind of zones of sonic immersion through which we move. The sound of a voice can be a very emotive and really does act as a trigger for memory. And, and judging by how people respond to some of my works, they often see or it reminds me of something. I lived in Kensington, I used to run across the street. I started off in Kensington, I never well in boys. And then I, there were two, but I only went for one term, and that was that. Then, well, it's about memory, but also about really defining the place you're in. So you have these two things going on simultaneously that stops you from being taken away completely by the sound because it's more like an intervention into public space where you have all these other ambient sounds. Look at where we are now and you see buildings from probably a thousand years of London history. And then you have the, the time of the trees that you can see, the time again of the, the passers-by who are in their own space and time. And, you know, her work intersects and interacts with all of these different overlaid realities. beautiful way of thinking about time that the, 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 the French historian and sociologist Fernand Broidel talked about and he talked about 
different kinds of time. He talked about um, geological time, so that was the, the time of the sort of movement of uh, glaciers or rivers and climate change and all of that. Then he talked about historical time, so the time of vast changes in culture and whatever, and then he talked about biological time, so the time of the individual living in a particular place at a particular time. And I think, we talk about layering, I think that Susan's work very delicately evokes all of these different layers of time, the geological, the historical, and the biological. You know, streets and, and squares do preserve, they do preserve past epochs. There are definitely places which have a, a density of memory attached to them. I think Peter Ackroyd has a strong sort of spiritual sense that the London streets are still alive in the fabric of its buildings, that if only we could listen, we can actually sort of almost hear voices of people in the remote past. My name is Rachel Lichtenstein. I'm an artist, a writer and an oral historian. I think all of my work as an artist and a writer is driven by memory or a search for something past. One thing that you would find in Rachel Lichtenstein's view of, of the East of London through her collaboration with Ian Sinclair on Rodinsky's room is a city is also made up of practices. I took a left up Brick Lane and found the turn off for Princelet Street. Number 19 seemed a most unlikely museum, with no plaque outside and apparently derelict. Gently I pushed against the large wooden doors and finding them open stepped inside. The temperature change was extreme. I began to shiver. For me personally, I think there are definitely places which have a, a density of memory attached to them. It's, it's almost physical. Sometimes it's almost visible. For example, the first book that I wrote in collaboration with Ian Sinclair was, was, was based on the time I spent in the Princess Street Synagogue. A single bulb was attempting to light up the dark green wood panelled corridor in which I found myself. To the right, worn stone steps led up to another floor. Stacked in the corner behind the entrance doors were boxes of empty beer bottles, their staleness adding to the odour of dampness and dust. I could hear muffled voices ahead and a light seat under the door at the end of the corridor. I moved to call out but the words stuck in my throat the atmosphere still retained the oppressiveness of a religious space. It seemed natural to speak in whispers. It was a gut physical reaction for me. I, I, I cried, I was overwhelmed to be in this space, which looked as if it had been directly transported uh, from Eastern Europe, which I later found out it had. 
But as soon as I entered that synagogue building, I, I had the strongest feeling that I was meant to be there. I'm not interested in biographical truth. Biography, to me, is a like history, another form of fiction. My interest in biography is also very colored by melodrama. I'm not so much interested in, in truth, but in getting across certain kinds of drama, certain, in certain kind of intensity. Mike Kelly's uh, project, Mobile Homestead, is uh, based on the home. Uh, in which uh, the artist grew up in the suburbs of Detroit. And this first phase of the project involves one part of the, f the facade of the house being remade as a mobile home, which will travel around the city of Detroit, dispensing various kinds of social services. So the initial idea of the project was this idea of this typical suburban house with this hidden kind of subconscious replica of it underneath that I would use to shoot videos based around repressed memory syndrome ideas. Repressed memory syndrome was one of these faddish theories about how memories were so traumatic that they were just forgotten and lay forgotten until certain kinds of psychologists could bring them out into the open. There was a famous case at a preschool where the uh, teachers were accused of child abuse, but also a lot of very strange, like ritualistic activities. And, and this kind of witch hunting spread across the country, oftentimes promoted by uh, Christian organizations. Mike Kelly's always been very interested in what's hidden and what's submerged. Physical architecture, the architecture of, of a house or a school, but also what's hidden within the architecture of the mind. I started going back and looking at the architecture of my youth, and first by you know, my interest in what I could not remember, and through this kind of theory, um, lost memory is generally related to trauma. So you forget trauma. So through that theory, all this unremembered architectural space must be site of trauma. So I started making videos about, I like to say videos that I think of as screen memories that fill in this missing time. And after a while of working with this kind of a fantasy um, space, I thought it would be interesting to start to work with an actual space. I mean, in the same way that, that, that Clio Barnard built her script, out of the memories of you know, the family, Andrea Dunbar's family. Mike Kelly builds his project around his own memories of some of childhood incidents. But whether those memories are really true or whether they are embroidered or invented, 
has to be for us to make our own minds up about. I just remember banging and banging and banging on the window, trying to get out. See, in a way, it's all, it's all about memory. I'm not so much interested in, in truth, but in getting across certain the truth, truth, but in getting across certain kinds of finding out the truth. Many artistic projects, I think, play with this. My work as an artist and a writer, musician, myself an artist, filmmaker, artist and a writer and an oral historian. The whole idea of doing this project came out of the rise in the age. You know, I don't think artists such as as Mike Kelly or or Susan Phillips or maybe Clio Barnard are really interested in recuperating memory. The truth. I think they're more interested in the way we think now. I hope an audience then starts to, in a way, doubt what it is that's being put in front of them. It seems real to me. I think I had to grow up. I had to see the world as it was. This Art Angel podcast was produced by me, Francesca Panetta. It featured Mike Kelly, Clio Barnard, and Susan Phillips, all of whose Art Angel projects are opening in autumn 2010. You also heard the voices of scientists Stephen Rose, historian Michael Sheringham, poet Lavinia Greenlaw, violinist Paul Robertson, and author Rachel Lichtenstein, as well as Art Angel co director James Lingwood. The music came from the film The Arbor, from Susan Phillips' project Surround Me, and from composers Felix Carey, Andrew Peckler, and Rui Law. For more information, visit artangel.org.uk.